So I recently cleaned up my office a bit uh, over at the Herning campus. I got some bookcases for all of my many commentaries. Um, I got a standing desk, which I can now look at with pride from the comfort of my office chair. Um, <laughs> I, got, uh, I got a French press so I can brew decaf in the privacy of my office without the rest of the staff making fun of me for it. And I got some decorative things as well. This was my Mother's Day gift. So my husband Rob stayed home all weekend with our daughter Ember while I was at the office kind of moving and organizing. And at Ember's daycare, they do this, uh, this Mother's Day tea the, the Friday before Mother's Day. And um, I couldn't go because I was moving my office. But I said, hey, Ember, we're going to do our own little Mother's Day tea, just you and me. And of course, Daddy, because she wants to invite him to everything. And so I get home that day. And Ember, is she is pumped for the Mother's Day tea. She has gotten out our fine china and laid it on you know, the, the porch. Um, and she has, she has Cheerios and cheese crackers and she asked me to make hot dogs. We have some excellent food for our fine china. And, and she like puts on a fancy bell dress and she wants me to put on a dress and she tells daddy to dress up and it's just all too adorable for words. But I'm still a little bit preoccupied with finishing my office. And so while the hot dogs are cooking, I jump on Amazon and I'm checking to see if my, my last box has arrived, the last of the stuff that I ordered from my office. And much to my surprise, Amazon says, yes, it's, it's, it's arrived. And I said, no, most certainly it has not arrived because I just walked in the door and the box wasn't there. And they're like, lady, we already delivered it. Here's a picture of your front door with the box in front of it. Leave us alone. And I'm like, no, no, no. And I realize someone <laughs> has stolen my Amazon box. Where is the justice in the world? I'm furious and Ember's coming in. Mom, mommy, the, the, the tea party's right now. I'm like, yeah, okay, baby, mommy's talking to Amazon. And so we go on like this for a little while. Rob comes out. He's like, hey, your daughter's really excited about that tea party that's happening out there. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be right out. Meanwhile, at this point, I'm scrolling through videos on my phone from our Blink system, the little motion-activated cameras we have pointed at the door uh, to see you know, who's made off with my box. Only there's like 50 videos because of a very bouncy lizard that lives right next to the camera. So, you know, and, and in my head, I'm doing all of this like very, very fast. You know, I'm doing all this very fast. But in reality, you know, Rob's beard has grown out and we're starting college. Come on, mommy, come outside. I'm like, okay, okay. Finally, Rob comes out looking very serious, which was hard for him, by the way, because he had a giant dollop of ketchup on his tie that presumably dripped off his Mother's Day hot dog. And he's like, seriously? We can deal with this later. Can you come out to the tea? And I don't like being scolded, so you know, I just like snap my computer closed. I'm like, fine, let's go eat Cheerios and hot dogs on the porch while we don't know who like stole my box. Now you'd think, based on my behavior, that I had the stinking Mona Lisa in that Amazon shipment, but I didn't. In fact, I had um, two fuzzy faux fur sheepskins in navy blue that I was gonna drape tastefully across my office chairs. I mean, this was not the end of the world, but my disappointment and not finding what it was that was promised to me was, had me so preoccupied that I couldn't even enjoy the good that was right in front of me. I couldn't enjoy the good that was in front of me because I was so angry about the good that I expected that didn't show up. What do we do? What do we do when what we expected never shows up? As Gary mentioned, we're going to be continuing in our series on the Minor Prophets, and today we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai. It's a very short book. You should read it today if you have a chance. It's just a little book, um, just two chapters, and, if, and, 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 and in it, God is writing to people who are experiencing disappointment. They're experiencing the delay of promises that they expected to have already. Now, to understand their disappointment, we really need to have some context on their world, like what was going on for them, what was going on around them. And, and so we'll start with the larger story, kind of where they are in the grand narrative of created history. So we have to begin at the beginning. So out of love, 
God creates Adam and Eve and the beautiful create. Yeah, the beginning, beginning. We're going to be here till Wednesday. Um, <laughs> the, no, I'm going to get you through Genesis in three minutes. It'll be great. So out of, out of love, God creates Adam and Eve and this beautiful creation that he gives to them to, to steward, to, to enjoy. And there's only one stipulation. There's just one thing you can't do. You have one job, right? But then the devil comes. And he tempts them to do that one thing, and they do it. And as a result of their sin, suffering and death enter the world. And they go on to populate the, the earth with people, but all the people just have a really hard time living in harmony with God their creator because they keep doing versions, different versions of this one thing. And, and they're getting more corrupt and evil all the time. And so to help draw the people back to himself, God chooses the nation of Israel to act as an example, to lead them by example. He, he chooses Israel to be essentially his display people. He wants them to live lives that are so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that, that other people look at them and they wanna know the God they live that way for. They look at them and they, they, they understand that living in covenant community with God leads to blessedness and they want to live in covenant community with him too. So, so that's, that was the purpose of choosing Israel. That's really important to remember. So, so Israel had this mission Live lives that are so magnetic that it draws other people into the covenant. That's their job, so keep that in mind. So Israel has a hard time living out this mission because she continues to do different versions of that one thing. And, and, and God keeps telling them through the voice of the prophets, listen, listen, please turn back. Please turn away from this wickedness, this violence, or, or I'm going to have to step in. But the people, they, they ignore the voice of the prophets because they, they have this unreasonable confidence. Because they were God's chosen people, they have this unreasonable confidence, their belief that, that, that God's never actually going to punish them or discipline them. He'll just do that to the other nations, not us. And so God, and this is important, God, in his grace, in his grace for all of the people to whom Israel was supposed to demonstrate his love and invite into the covenant, God in his grace allowed Israel to go through some very painful experiences that were, that were gonna turn her heart away from their wickedness and violence and turn them back to him. And so Israel's conquered, I'm sorry, uh, Jerusalem is conquered by Babylon. 586 BC, the people are carried off as plunder. And again, again, the people had this unreasonable confidence because they were God's chosen people, and so they were absolutely devastated by this fall. This was shocking to them, but it should not have been surprising if we remember why God chose Israel to begin with. Remember, she was supposed to be the display people, the, the people who, who lived these lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, that, that other people looked at them and thought, I, I want to live like this too. I want to be in this blessed covenant community with God. And that, that was their job. They were literally supposed to turn people's heads toward Jesus. Now, if they look like everybody else, they're not going to turn anybody's heads. So you see, their mission was all bound up in, in with their holiness and with their obedience to God. So God allowed Israel's fall so that the pain, the refining pain of this experience would turn her heart away from the idols that were slowly killing her and away from the idols that were sabotaging her mission. Now, now, not because God hates comfort. I think I get this idea in my head, at least, when I'm experiencing something painful that God hates comfort, that he just wants, you know, like the hardest thing for me because that will make me a better Christian. That's not true. God doesn't hate comfort. But God does love us too much to let us comfort ourselves to death 
which is exactly what idolatry, even in its, its least offensive forms, will eventually do. So the people are, are living in exile, um, and then Babylon is conquered by the Persians. And the Persian emperor Cyrus tells the people, you, can t you guys can go back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild, which, which is a big deal. It, it fulfilled the, the prophecy in Isaiah. And so a big group of them leave. They're excited, they go back. And, and listen, they left some really good stuff. They had been in that settlement in Susa for a long time, so they left, they left friends, they left family, they left lucrative businesses. They gave up all this stuff to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild and rebuild the temple there. But when they got there, they kept getting met with these terrible obstacles. First, there's like a bunch of enemies who are opposing them. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. There's drought. The land isn't producing. Like everything is going wrong. And so, so for the first two years, all they managed to do is, is lay the foundation of the temple that's been destroyed. But then after that two years, they just quit building altogether. And for 16 years more, not a single brick is laid. The people have lost their interest in rebuilding. And now they're just kind of eking out whatever existence they can and just hoping something supernatural will happen. They started using the materials for the building project to, to build their own houses. Because they just, at that point, they're just like, I just want a little bit of comfort. Just something to hang on to. And that's when Haggai shows up with a message from God. And Haggai says, God wants to know why you guys are living in these paneled houses while his house lays in ruins. And to, the, to their credit, the people respond immediately because they're not as stubborn or hard-headed as they, was, they were before they were humbled by the exile. And so they get to work right away. They start rebuilding the temple. But about a month into the project, about a month into the project, the, the, the new temple's going up. But then there's this group of old folks who they were around before Babylon conquered Jerusalem. So you understand, they saw the first temple that had been built under Solomon, Temple kind of 1.0, which was glorious, right? And they're looking at this new temple and they're weeping over it because they're like, this isn't, this isn't anything like it was. This is heartbreaking. This will never be what it was before. And so they're kind of weeping over the temple that's going up and morale is low and there's a possibility that maybe the 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 work is going to stop again. And so that's where we're picking up in our text today. This is Haggai chapter 2. So Haggai comes back after that month, and he has a second message from God. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You can read along if you have your Bibles or just listen as I read. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. By the way, Zerubbabel is, is the grandson of the last king of Judah. So he, he would have been on the throne had Judah not fallen to Babylon. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. God makes some extravagant promises to his people across, across the whole Bible, doesn't he? I mean, we, we memorize some of these promises. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I see some of you mouthing those words as I say them. We, we remember these promises. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. We, we memorize these promises. Abraham. God promised Abraham 
the father of the Israelites, that he was going to make him into a great nation. Uh, you know, they were barren. And, and he said, I'm going to make you so many people that you're going to surpass the, the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. And that all people on earth will be blessed through you. That's what he promised Abraham. And these people, these people returned from exile, these people who are weeping over this temple going up, these are Abraham's descendants. And so I imagine as they're, as they're looking around at the rubble that they've been living in, at, at, at the hardness of their lives, at this temple, this heap of a temple that's never going to be what it once was, I imagine that they're looking around at all this brokenness and, and wondering, was God telling the truth? Was he telling the truth? Did he, did he really mean all those promises? Did he lie to us? Did he lie to us or, or did we misunderstand? Because this is not at all what I expected. They're disappointed. They're disappointed and that disappointment has hamstrung their faith and so they've stopped building and they've stopped building because they've stopped hoping. And they've stopped hoping because what was promised doesn't seem to ever be showing up. In my husband's last job, he would often have to go overseas for two, three weeks at a time um, to do some really interesting stuff. He worked with some refugee camps to do needs assessments. He did water wells, seed, seed products, things like that. Um, so he would be gone several times during the year. And, and Ember, our daughter, um, had this experience kind of you know, pretty frequently of him being home, him leaving, and then him coming back that she started to trust me when I would say, daddy's on a trip. And then she would know, okay, daddy's on a trip. That means he's not going to be home for a little while, but then he's going to come home. Daddy's coming home. And so she was okay with it. But when she was a little younger, probably two and under, she didn't have a cumulative memory of this experience of his coming and then going, then coming home again. And so um, sometimes the experience of him being gone, even for a few days, was really upsetting to her. I remember one day in, in particular where she was walking around the house and just going up to me or whoever was there and saying, I lost my daddy, and oh my gosh. I mean, that's like, come on, the cruciatus curse to a mom. And so, so you know, she would, she would kind of do things to console herself. And one of the things that she would do, if I'd wake her up early in the morning, she'd look at me first, like first thing in the morning, and she'd just go, daddy's downstairs. And I'd have to say, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. Daddy's still on a trip, but he's coming home. He's coming home so soon. And I just thought that was like the sweetest thing she did. And then one night, I'm, I'm, I'm putting her to bed, and we'd done bath and read a book and all that stuff. And she just wanted to sit with me for a few minutes while, uh, just for a few minutes before I put her down. And so she snuggles up next to me in the chair and she puts her little cheek next to my cheek. And then she starts to whisper in my ear, Daddy's downstairs. Daddy's downstairs. Daddy's downstairs. So that was about the most terrifying 15 minutes of my life. <laughs> Super creepy. Like all you needed was like a little kid singing and a bit of a doll and then it was just really, it was a horror movie just waiting to happen. Time was less meaningful to her, right? Because she couldn't read a clock, she couldn't look at a calendar. Uh, it, it was all relative. If she was happy and well-fed and daddy's home, like, you know, everything's great, time flies. But if she's sick or hungry or daddy's on a trip, then time seems to go interminably slow. And the things she's waiting for just seem to take so long. And of course, the longer that they take, the harder it is for me to convince her that they're still coming. God makes extravagant promises to us, health and feasting and streets paved with gold. And, and, and on a long enough timeline, every single one of those promises will come true. But the reality is, not all of those promises were meant for today. Some of them were meant for tomorrow. 
And some of them are meant for tomorrows that won't come until our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren have grown. God makes great and glorious promises. And again, on a long enough timeline, every one of them will come true. But God's promise in the present is just to be with us. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. It's just to be with us. He didn't promise that the work's going to be easy. He didn't promise they'll even get to see the fruit of that work. He just promises to be with them as they do it. I mean, even Jesus, when he sends out the 12 to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and uh, teaching them to do everything I've commanded you, he doesn't then follow that up with, and surely I will make you successful. He doesn't. No. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In the present, God's promise to us is God. He promises us himself, and we have to be so careful not to confuse present promises with future promises, because if we do that, we will actually experience despair where we ought to be experiencing hope because we'll take the thing that we have to look forward to, the promises of God, and we'll go into despair because we thought they were coming sooner. We take the thing of hope and make it into despair. And, but if we read the Bible at all, like how can we not find hope in that? If we understand what God has done, if we remember, if we look forward to what he's promised to do, how can we despair in that? And guys, I live every single day of my life with chronic illness. And I've lost people that I loved far too soon. So I don't mean to be indelicate when I say this, but I have to come out and say it, guys. Despair is a sin. It's a sin. And it is a sneaky, cunning, two-faced trap of a sin because it doesn't feel sinful. It just feels like self-pity. It feels like grief. But it, it turns a corner somewhere and it stops being a good, healthy, grieving and disappointment and it becomes far more sinister. It becomes an excuse that stops all momentum of our faith. Despair makes us into a victim, and we don't expect anything of victims. That's, that's what makes it such a tempting response, you understand? Because it alleviates all my responsibility to move forward from here. Despair is a sin because it, it leaves no room for hope, hope that we have to have, hope that we must have. If we remember anything our God has done, but, but, but despair won't make room for hope. Despair says if it doesn't exist now, it doesn't exist at all. If it doesn't exist for me, it doesn't exist at all. Rob and I recently lost a baby. And we'd been trying for like two and a half years to get pregnant again, but what with all my old people diseases, um, we just thought, yeah, this isn't going to work for us. And we grieved that and we mourned it, but, but we knew it was going to be okay. But then about three months ago, um, through a weird series of events, I found myself driving to the ER after work. And it wasn't even urgent, but I've hit my deductible, so, you know, I do what I want. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You hit that deductible, you're like, oh, I have a hangnail, probably need a neurologist for that. Um, so earlier that week, I'd gotten food poisoning, and uh, I'd been thrown up, and, and so um, I, I started having abdominal pain, and I thought, um, you know, ordinarily, 
I wouldn't think twice about that. I'd just take an ibuprofen and it'd be fine. But because I had been throwing up kind of the week earlier, um, I thought, well, then maybe that, that might be appendicitis. I should probably get that checked out. And it's my own stupid fault because I found some food left over in the Summit break room fridge and I ate it. Uh, it was payway, by the way, if you're interested to know that. Uh, it was delicious, but I paid for it dearly for, <laughs> for the day after that. So anyway, so I think worst case scenario, I'm going to go to the ER and lose a, a few hours of my life to, to a waiting room. But I get there. And they do the exam, and they, they do the ultrasound, and they take some blood, and then after a few minutes, a nurse comes in, and she says, do you know that you're pregnant? And I literally laughed out the word, what? No, I didn't know I was pregnant, and I'm delighted, and I'm crying, and I'm about to call my mom, and, and I spent you know some time just sitting there in that kind of blissful state of shock. But then about an hour later, a doctor came in, um, and he said that... Um, he said, I'm so sorry, but the pregnancy is ectopic. Uh, the, the egg has implanted in your fallopian tube, and the baby's not going to make it. And it's also a, a life-threatening condition, so you, know, you have to have surgery. And so the very next day, they ushered me into surgery, and they took away my left fallopian tube and the baby inside of it. And it broke my heart. I mean, this is what I'd prayed for. This is what I'd hoped for. This is what I'd begged for from God. And when the nurse came in, I thought I was getting the desire of my heart. But then the doctor came in and I realized this is not turning out at all as I expected. I think one of the hardest and most surprising things about aging, and I realize I'm only 36, but with tremors and arthritis, I do feel like I'm on the fast track, so cut me a break. Um, one of the hardest and most surprising things about aging is that you know you realize, <laughs> I still have all this work to do. <laughs> I have this work to do, you know, um, work that God has called me to, good work, you know, ministering, raising kids, telling people about Jesus, Be, being married, being married is hard work, and I have a great husband. <laughs> I have no idea how hard it would be if you have, like, like, crap husband, but it's really hard even with a good one. You know, writing sermons, writing sermons, I have a bad memory and no seminary degree, guys. Writing sermons is hard work for me, and regroup is hard work, you know, it's, and it, it's, it's not so much that I thought that God would never ask me to do anything hard. Like, I mean, of, of course he would. So much of our life is toil, this side of heaven. I knew that he was going to ask me to do hard things. That I just, I just guess I just never thought he'd ask me to do them under these conditions. Does that make sense to you? You know, your car breaks down and you're already living on peanuts. You get sick and you're already taking care of someone who's sicker find yourself a single parent, you know, your, your marriage becomes so unspectacular that you don't even want to fight for it anymore, and you're thinking, God, I, I know you want me to do this, I know you want me to do this, but, but could you just make me better so I can? Could you just give me a little more time, a little more money, a little more space so I can focus, you know, on, on, on the thing, on the deadline, on the relationship, on the whatever you ask me to do. I could do it so much better if you just change this. I get why we despair. Guys, I get it. I've been there. 
I get when it feels like everything you're working toward is futility. But if we want any chance at hope, at peace, at happiness even on this side of heaven, we have to get our facts straight. And the fact is that God never promised us easy. He promised us himself. He never promised us easy. He just promised he would be with us in the hard. And the fact is that we didn't lose a child because of God. We we lost a child because we are living out the consequences of a fallen world, a fall that, that we invited with our own rebellion, a fall that I continue to invite into the world with my continued rebellion. And so, of course, you know, tragedy is going to keep happening until Jesus comes to set all things to rights. He, he hasn't singled me out for special misery. This is just life in a creation bent by sin, but he promises the creation won't be bent forever. And if we could just remember that, if we could just muster up the gumption to remember that, then, then maybe we can stop being so miserable and maybe we can even begin to assist him with the unbending of this world. I spent a, probably a good two weeks on my couch just crying into my ice cream. Um, I mean, really, if you made like a pie chart of where my calories came from those two weeks, 70% of that pie chart came from ice cream. And the remaining 30% came from actual pie. So there was that. I fell apart, you know. I fell apart for a while. And and falling apart is a fine thing to do for a little while. But then eventually you have to stop falling apart and you have to get back to the rest of your life. I mean, I I have a little girl who's about to start kindergarten. I have this incredible husband who, who did all of my work and all of his so that I could have space to fall apart. I have great coworkers who, who picked up sermons for me so that I had space to grieve, and, and I owed it to them to get off my couch and get back to the business of living. And, and I'm not saying it's not hard. I mean, this is one of the hardest things I've ever experienced. It's one of the hardest things I've ever experienced, but guys, I still have stuff to do. <laughs> I still have dogs to walk and sermons to write and people to feed and laundry to do and VPK graduations to attend, what? And, and, you know, maybe someday weddings to plan and colleges to visit. And if God is very gracious, grandbabies to hold. I, I can't spend the rest of my life on my couch no matter how much I sometimes want to. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you. The people of Haggai's day, I'm sure they thought they were receiving the desire of their heart when Cyrus released them to go back home and rebuild, but then they got there and it was so hard. I mean, the the enemies and the drought and, and just the lack of resources, but you understand that didn't exempt them from continuing the work. And this didn't exempt me. I think in the midst of disappointment, we have two choices. You know, we, we can choose despair and we can stop working and we can make, and more importantly, allow ourselves to continue to be victims and then we kind of become useless to ourselves and to the rest of the world or we can choose hope we can choose to risk hope hope that allows us to be strong and work 
Because if despair says, if it doesn't exist now, it doesn't exist at all, hope responds, if it doesn't exist now, it must still be coming. Guys, it's, it's still coming. And I know, I know hope is risky, and I am often badly out of practice myself, but, but there are ways that we can cultivate it in our lives, and, and this passage gives us some hints as to how to do that. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. And then verse 5. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Did you catch that? When you came out of Egypt, God wants us to look backward and remember, all the way back to Egypt, apparently. God wants us to remember. The, the Bible calls us over and over and over again to remember. Why? One, because we are terribly bad at it. But second, there is so much to be remembered. We are God's people which means he has grafted us in to his history. That means Israel's history is now our history too. That means God kicked down the doors of Egypt for you. God parted the Red Sea for you. God rained manna from heaven for you. That is our history and we have to remember it. If we're going to understand our God, his character, and, and who he made us to be, God wants us to look backward. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Then he goes on to say in the next paragraph, verse 6, in a little while, I will once again shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. God wants us to look backward, but he also wants us to look forward. He wants us to look forward. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. He wants us to look forward to the promises that are still to come. We can't forget that. Now, a little self-pity every now and again is not going to bring about the apocalypse, but self-pity married to a bad memory and a lack of imagination will kill your faith. You know, I, I think we set ourselves up for disappointment, I, even a crisis of faith when we begin to confuse future promises with present promises. It is dangerous to believe God for all the wrong things, but that doesn't mean we should believe him for nothing at all. I mean, that is the seed of despair, and if you water it, guys, if, if you hope for nothing, you are not the only one who suffers. Listen to me, when, when, when we get so inwardly turned because of suffering, and I've been there, I mean, it becomes so isolating and so painful and we're alone and we feel like, what does it matter? You know, what does it matter if I try? What does it matter if I care? What does it matter if I, if I get off this couch and eat something other than this ice cream? I'm not hurting anyone but me. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Because you are God's display people whether you want the job or not. You are his love letter. To a desperate world, you are his image bearer and his, his ambassador here. People are looking at you and they are deciding something about him. Help them decide something true. And I'm not even trying to self-help you. I'm not like, you owe it to yourself to get off the couch. No, you owe it to them. You owe it to the little boy, who's, who, your, your son who's watching you and deciding if it's, if it's worth it to work hard in an unfair system stacked against him because of the color of his skin. 
You owe it to the, to the husband who's holding everything together while you fall apart. You owe it to the sister who's wondering if ending it all is better than pushing through. You know, you owe it to the friend who doesn't even know if it's worth it to follow God to begin with. You owe it to them to work hard, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. And I'm not saying don't rest. I'm not saying don't have boundaries. I mean, we know from Scripture there is a season for everything, a season for mourning, a season for taking a break. There's a season for crying into your ice cream, but, but that season is finite. And at the end of it, we still have to figure out what to do next. And what God calls us to do through the voice of his prophets is to be strong and work. We owe it to them. We owe it to him. Him who did nothing wrong. Him who came only to offer grace and forgiveness and yet found himself alone, weeping and sweating blood in a garden, begging that this cup would pass from him. But when God said no, Jesus chose to be strong and work still to die the, sin, the death our sins deserved so that we could live, we owe it to him because he didn't owe it to us. But he did it anyway. You understand, not even Jesus Christ himself got to see the final victory before he died. And neither did the people in Haggai's day, but God always keeps his promises. He promised that the, 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 the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. That was the promise. And he did make good on it because that temple, that temple that these people were weeping over because the cloud of glory never came back to it, the temple that they said would never be what it once was, that's the temple into which Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus for his dedication. The Lord of all glory the one who did in fact grant peace forever between God and man. God always makes good on his promises. His character won't allow otherwise, but not always on our timeline. And certainly not always in the ways we expect. In fact, he did give me the desire of my heart because I begged God for another child and now I have one. I just haven't met her yet. Ugh. So after having spent just an inordinate amount of time on the phone with Amazon and having exhausted all of my tiny Blink videos, I finally resigned myself to the reality that someone had made off with my fuzzy faux fur blue sheepskins. And I could only console myself with the thought that when the thief opened the box, he would be as disappointed as I was. <laughs> because there is not an iPad in there, sir. Only the hide of Cookie Monster. I ruined our tea party with my bad attitude, with my inability to concentrate on the good, or appreciate, I suppose, on the good that was right in front of me uh, because of my disappointment for the good that was not showing up. And then Rob, out of sheer, sheer curiosity, I think, walks over the door, and he opens it up, and he's like, Kaylee, 
box was there the whole time. And I think the Amazon people must have, they had to have been like right behind me as I was walking up my driveway coming in from work and they laid the box down, didn't even ring the bell because surely this woman has seen us, we're right behind her. Didn't see it, I just missed it. So there the whole time. And of course I missed something far more important than blue sheepskins, which was in front of my eyes the whole day, but I couldn't see it because of my unreasonable disappointment. The end of the book of Haggai has some beautiful prophecy in it about God restoring his people, about his blessings over a defiled nation, but it leaves us with no real information about what the people do, what they choose. Will, will they be strong in work? Will they avoid the idolatry that landed their grandparents in exile to begin with? We don't know. You have to keep reading into Zechariah and Malachi to find out, but I like the mystery of it myself because even though this book is written to people in a different time, in a different set of circumstances, in a different nation. It still begs the same question of us today. Is God being with us enough? It's a hard question. But I think it's one that we all have to reckon with as believers because the answer to it will reveal whether we are actually seeking after God or if we're only seeking the blessings that God provides. And, and if you find yourself upon honest assessment in the latter category, listen, I am not judging you. I am there all too often myself. But what I'm saying is that we don't have to stay there because it's a miserable place to live. Is God being with us enough? Don't let disappointment blind you to the tea party that's happening right in front of you. Don't let it rob you of the hope of the promises to come. And don't let it paralyze you from the work that he has called you to do today. Is he enough? Is he enough? Or are we looking for something more than God incarnate? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that even in your moment of greatest despair, you chose to be strong and work so that we could live. Thank you, Lord, that you are a savior who knows what it's like to be human, who knows what it's like to be scared, who knows what it's like to be hurt by the people that you love. Lord, you know all those things and you have never abandoned us even when we've abandoned you. Thank you. Thank you for being so good that you've overcome us being so bad. Lord, I pray for each and every person in this room and whatever it is they're facing, whether it's disease or divorce or fear, anxiety, depression, sickness, addiction, Lord, you know every heart in this room. You know what they need. You know what they need to hear. Speak to them, Lord. Let them feel you near to them tangibly. Let me feel you near. Because you promise, and we know that you'll be true to your promise, to be with us always. Thank you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.